0: Let's turn together to John 16. It's been a few weeks since we've been in our study in John, but we'll continue our worship by looking at our Lord more closely uh, from this lesser known passage in the Upper Room Discourse. John chapter 16, we'll specifically be studying verses 5 through 15, but to facilitate our time, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 to start to remind us of where we've been. Studying verses 5 through 15, I will read verses 1 through 7. Please read along silently with me. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when... Whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The advantage. Several phrases come to mind as I think about having an advantage. One gentleman a few months ago used this phrase with me. I'd never thought of it before. He said, I was born on third base that's an advantage. (laughs) Or maybe we talk about, it's like a downhill walk. we feel like we're going uphill, there's just disadvantage, there's stuff that's working against us. Some, it's, it's just like a downhill walk. I think advantage plays itself out often in the board games that we play. When you get dealt a good hand, like when you have the rook card, or the draw four wild card. (laughs) You play with a new confidence at that point. There's There's a vigor, there's an energy as you engage in the game because you know that you enjoy an advantage. And here Jesus is telling all of his followers, indeed, you enjoy even in my absence an advantage. And yet, I don't think that most of us walk around as if we have this trump card in pocket. I think most of us think we need to get on base. We're not thinking we're already on third. And it's natural. We've had some hard roads. I'm just looking around. People that are here today. I know very few who haven't suffered from some kind of dysfunction in early childhood, broken families of all kinds, overcoming all kinds of hardship. Many of you suffering chronically, physically, even now. Emotional maladies move in and out like low pressure systems of life. And then there's the headwinds that work against us. You think culturally about what's going on in the broader world, and you think there is no advantage to being a Christian in this time, in this era. It seems that legislation is against us, the executive branch is against us, and then the judicial cuts us a break from time to time, but probably not for long. It just seems that we're disadvantaged. We operate as if like we're behind, as if we have a poor hand. And yet, the point of Jesus' discourse is that we would actually walk around with the joy and the encouragement that things are well. The disciples at this point, just to bring you back up to speed, I mean, they are are suffering from what is perceived to be a major disadvantage. There's two things that primarily come to mind as we review their situation. One is that Jesus, over the course of the chapters 15 and into 16, is deploying them on a mission saying, hey, I want you guys to go out and bear fruit and represent me to the world. And by the way, they're going to hate you for it. They're going to try to kill you. In fact, some of them will even think that they're doing God a favor by trying to kill you. So, good luck. It's like mission impossible. But then there's a second thing that's even greater than the first thing that seems to be a disadvantage, and that is this Jesus is saying, Oh, by the way, I'm out of here. I mean, it's one thing for Jesus and the disciples, you know, the, the, the remaining 11 to go out and like take the world by storm with Jesus at the head. It's something else for him to say, All right, mission impossible, let's go, I'm out. They're feeling disadvantaged. Like they're getting the short end of the missionary stick. Like, what's the plan? What is the strategy in this? That's why Jesus says, look at the second half of verse 4, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. He was warning them that, hey, when I was with you, as I've been with you, I've been taking the brunt of this I didn't need to warn you about this. But now, verse 5, I am going to him who sent me. And notice this, his compassion. He recognizes their sorrow. He says, I told you I'm going and none of you is asking me, where are you going? Like you would think if he's going to say, all right, Um, you've got a mission, I'm going to take off. If they really cared about this whole mission, like they should be wondering, hey, what are you going to be up to? What are you going to be doing while we're gone? Okay, we've got our, our part, but what about you? They're not thinking that at all. Jesus says, none of you are actually expressing concern about where I'm going because I have said these things to you, talking about leaving, sorrow has filled your heart. Y'all know what that is, don't you? When you get sad, when you get sorrowful, when you get hurt, you can only really think about yourself. They're not concerned about Jesus. They're concerned about themselves in this particular situation. And Jesus doesn't, like, chastise them over this. He says, look, I get it. I get sorrows filled your heart. So, let me remind you of something Something that I've already told you about four other times in this discourse, but it hasn't connected yet. This is going to be good for you. It's actually going to be better, better for me to go away as you accomplish this mission than for me to stay. And <laughs> Now you're like, all right, uh, that sounds like wishful thinking. But here's the reason why. He says, it is to your advantage, verse 7, that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, capital H, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying, it's going to be better for you because the Holy Spirit will be present. Now, does anybody else read that and you kind of like want to throw up a question like, why can't y'all both come? (laughs) That's what I was thinking this week. Like, I think it'd be really cool if Jesus would have stayed and the Holy Spirit would have come. Like, it just seems that, you know, like, I don't ask too many questions because it would seem irreverent. But I think I understand why Jesus said this. When you read the Old Testament and the promises of the coming Spirit... God said, He decreed it, that the Spirit would come and indwell His people at the end of time when the Messiah would take the throne. Jesus must sit on the cosmic throne. He must be crowned as king. He must rule and reign from His seat in heaven for those promises to be fulfilled. Sure, there will come a time where this all can happen, but in the way that God has planned it, He intended for His people to enjoy the empowerment of the Spirit in a way that only kings in the past ever knew, and special privileged individuals. And Jesus is saying that is actually better. It's better for several reasons. We talked about them the other week. I'll tell you the ones in the text, but let me just point out two obvious ones. The first one is this. It's better because of location. Could you imagine if Jesus was still present, like in Jerusalem currently, and you wanted to have access to him? You thought the line at Culver's after church was long? Can you imagine what it would be like to have to book a flight to Jerusalem, and then to have to sit there and like, I mean, maybe like you get one minute with Jesus in your lifetime? (laughs) There's the limitation of location. But then there's this other piece that was was so interesting as well that Jesus is actually saying, hey, I'm not just going to be with you, but God will be in you. The Spirit will be in them, not just among them. These are the obvious ones. But it's not even the advantages Jesus is talking about. There's two in particular that should lead you to believe, even this week, encourage you that you have the upper hand, that you have the advantage because of the Spirit's presence. So what is the Spirit doing that advantages us to such a degree? Two things, very simple. He's among us convicting the world. The Spirit is convicting the world, and He's also conveying the truth. Convicting the world and conveying the truth. Notice how Jesus continues in verse 8. He says, And when He comes, talking about the Helper, the authoritative Helper, the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, He's going to just mention those three, and then He's going to expand on them in in the verses, but let's just grasp the main operative word here, convict. He will convict the world. The world in John often represents those who are not under the rule and reign of God. What we think of as unbelievers, the unsaved, uh, non Christians could be a term, but I don't like the Christian thing because that could just be religious affiliation. We're talking about in Christ, to out of Christ, genuinely born again, those dead in sin. The world is that. And he's saying that I'm giving you this mission, right, to go out and to see people come into my kingdom. Well, guess what? The Spirit is going to be the one who convinces them that they need to be in the kingdom that they actually have a need. He's going to convict them. Convict is really the best word. Some of you have grown up at church. You hear people talk about that, like I was under conviction of the Holy Spirit. It means to be convinced. There's a logical side to it, but it means to be convinced that something wrong has happened or taken place in your own life. So there's, it isn't just to win the argument, but it's to win the argument about a, a moral deficiency in one's own life. The Spirit is the one that does that. The Spirit will come alongside them now as they preach, as they live, and He will convince other people of their need for Jesus. He specifically mentions three categories here. He says, sin, righteousness, judgment. Look at verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Sin is just missing the mark. That's a wonderful way to explain it. The Spirit will convince people that they're off the mark, that they are not actually hitting the bullseye with God, if you will, that they are out of bounds, they are out of His favor. And what in particular we normally think of well, did they commit some type of sexual sin, or did they steal something, or do they speak perversely, or have they been prideful? And yet, there is one key sin in particular that the Spirit will convict the world of, and that is not believing in Him. All the other sins are remedied by this particular one, if it's remedied. If one would simply believe in, trust in Jesus, those other things are taken care of. And guess what? It's the Spirit who does that convicting. He convinces people that they're off the mark because they don't believe in Jesus. Friends, if you're engaged in the work of the gospel, you're trying to see friends, loved ones, neighbors, co-workers come to faith in Jesus, guess what? It isn't up to you totally to convince them the Spirit is the one doing that. That's an advantage. You don't have to do it. Have you ever tried to convince someone that you love that they're wrong about something? It's Mother's Day, you got to be honest. Maybe it was your mother who told you, I don't think you should be doing that. And then your heart just kind of hardens and you're like, I think I should. Argument, counter argument, proposition, counter proposition. You know, like they say, uh, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Sometimes it doesn't matter how many facts, proofs you bring to the table, they just don't want to hear it. And I'm telling you, just heads up, most people don't want to hear that they're a sinner. They want to hear how great they are, but they don't want to hear that they're in sin. So, you can try to be the Holy Spirit and convince them of how terrible they are before God, or you can let the Spirit do that. There's an advantage there. The Spirit works indeed through the Word, but the Spirit is the one that ultimately does the convicting of sin. Not only that, look at verse 10. He also convicts concerning righteousness. What is righteousness? Here, the right standard, justice, what is right? (laughs) Basically, the Spirit convinces them that their standard of right or justice is off or it's wrong. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, by the way, where people were claiming to be right before God. and He's like, look, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your righteousness. I want something different. Your righteousness is messed up. Your right is wrong. Your justice is unjust. He will come and convict of Sham righteousness. How? This is interesting. Because I go to the Father, and you will no longer see me. <laughs> um, again, I love just to be honest with you as a congregation about how I read things. When I read that, I'm like, hmm, I'm not following. What does... Oh, sorry. I, that sounds like my ringtone, and I got really scared for a second. I'm good. Righteousness. How in the world is Jesus going away to the Father and not being sick? What does that have to do with right? I um, thought hard about that and tried to just remind myself of this. Well, Jesus ascending into heaven was actually God's stamp of approval that he is indeed the righteous one. Let me just put it to you this way. No unrighteous person just waltzes up into the heavenly presence of God Almighty. Only the righteous one is received by God like that. See, Jesus came, He entered into the human realm, and yes, indeed, He died for sin, but we kind of forget about like the second half of everything that He did. He also rose again from the dead and then was visibly, physically received by God into heaven. Like, here's the righteous one. Here's the standard of righteousness. This Jesus now disproves all other attempts at righteousness. Unless one is connected to this one, there is no righteousness. And the Spirit, listen to this, He's the one that convinces people of that. You could lay out your best arguments. You could use your best logic. You can argue till you're blue in the face. But ultimately, it is the Spirit who convinces people that Jesus is the righteous one par excellence, without equal. And then there's a third thing the Spirit convicts of that is judgment, verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Basically, the Spirit will demonstrate that the world is wrong about its perception of judgment. Judgment here doesn't mean to like um, make a decision, you know. Uh, Typically, we think of that, judging as being rather neutral. But often, in the New Testament especially, the word judgment is used with uh, a sense of discerning what is wrong. Remember Matthew 7? Let me give you an example. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. So people say stuff like this. Don't judge me. What they mean by that is, don't discern good and evil. They're not, they don't, they're not asking about making a decision. They're saying, you have, don't judge me and condemn me. And the text is saying that. Don't draw early condemnation with individuals because you don't want to be treated that way. So the word condemnation, even though it's not the exact same term, it's really close. So let me put it this way. The Spirit will convince people of condemnation, that God has made a decision about them, and that decision is that they are disapproved of. They've been wrong about that. The Spirit will convince them. Why? Because the ruler of this world is judged This indeed is complex, but I'll explain it as simply as I can. Basically, the ruler of the world is not just Satan, but it's expressed in the powers that existed in that time. Think about the way they would have heard this. The Roman emperor is calling himself God. He's calling himself Lord. He's the ruler of the world. And so the full weight of Rome has come to bear on the Lord Jesus. Rome thinks that it has quashed him, that it has destroyed him. And ultimately, he defies Rome. He defies the powers that exist in the world at that time by coming back to life. Now, that's an ominous thing, friends. Like, uh (laughs) uh-oh, we couldn't get him down we're the ones that are messed up. We we threw our best at him. And now we as the rulers of the world stand condemned. The spirit is the one who convinces people of that what I would call uh-oh moment. People are aware because of the way that they have lived, because of the things that they love, because of the things that they don't do, that there is an uh uh-oh, there is something wrong. I know very few people are like, death, bring it on. I can't wait to see what happens next. Most people experience dread at the prospect of death. That's why we fight for our health so viciously, because there's this sense of dread on what's on the other side, and it's the Spirit, who produces that in the world, the unbeliever. I love the way that, um, that Charles Spurgeon put this. It, many of you have probably never read his testimony. You just know him to be this like famous 19th century Baptist pastor that seemed to be kind of colorful and fun. He was, but in his conversion story, he speaks of this ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I read his words here. He says, I've spoken to many who know of what conviction means, yet I'm going to explain it from my own experience. From my reading, he's talking about when he had read the Bible, I knew what sin meant, yet I never knew sin in its heinousness and horror until I found myself bitten by it as by a fiery serpent." I felt its poison boiling in my veins. When the Holy Spirit made sin appear as sin to me, I was overwhelmed by the sight. I would rather have fled from myself to escape the intolerable vision. A naked sin that is stripped of all excuses and set in the light of truth is worse to see than to encounter the devil himself. The Spirit does that. You can point to the Bible verses, you can tell people they're wrong, you can try to convince them, but when, when they feel it <laughs> like fire in their veins, when they see sin for what it is without excuses, that is when the Holy Spirit's at work. And that is what must be done for one to run to Christ. It's impossible without it. Friends, we need to understand, grasp this as a church and as individuals, that it is the Spirit who convinces the world of their need for Jesus, not self-effort or strategy. Not self-effort or strategy. You've always, uh, maybe you've heard the phrase, uh, "Don't don't work hard, work smart." Some people get the idea that they tend to the working hard; they're just like all right, tell me what exactly what I need to do, and they're not thinking about the best way to do it. Some people, they're all about working smart, but they never get in and work hard. You know, they're, they're, they're the thinkers. My dad used to say, if you want to figure out the best way to do a job, give it to a lazy man. <laughs> He'll figure out the most efficient way to get it done. I think when it comes to this, um, this effort in which we know we want to see people, whether they're family members or friends, come to Jesus, we're like, okay, Some of us are in the work hard category, right? I'm just gonna keep chipping away at it. I'm gonna keep showing them those Bible verses. I'm gonna keep reminding them of how terrible they are before God so that they can come to Jesus. I'm gonna point out their sin, how they shouldn't be living that way, and they shouldn't be reading those things, and they shouldn't be watching those movies, and they should and some of us take that work hard pattern and we just work harder and harder and harder and harder. And then some people are all about strategy. Like, I'm just gonna plant seeds. I'm going to sit back, and wait, maybe if I give them this book and then bring up this conversation and then invite them to this particular church service and then get so-and-so to take them to lunch at this particular time and bring up this conversation and then follow it up with that card, like maybe then they'll understand their need for Jesus. And friends, I applaud the intentionality and the engagement but it just kind of makes me wonder, like, to what degree are we actually counting on the Holy Spirit to make it happen? You say, well, how would you know? What you rely on, what you engage intentionally, faithfully, what you're, what you're knowing will make the difference is the Word and prayer. If we prayed half as much as we planned, I wonder if we would see more conviction. I, I, I get it. We, we do our part. It's not just about working hard. It's not just about working smart. It's about working right. What does the Holy Spirit use to convince people of sin? I only know of two things. The Word of God and prayers to God. Now, if your strategy is that the Word's going to get the job done, great. Great. But I think sometimes we just include the word because we think that really the force of our personality will get the job done. And it doesn't work that way. I always like that encouragement um, to, to give somebody the word of Christ and to leave it with them. And then this phrase, talking to God more about man than man about God. I'm not saying that it has to be more than, but it should at least probably be equal to. God, do something. They came to church on Mother's Day. (laughs) Now, use the word, please, in their heart. Father, I compassionately shared that gospel truth with them and their need for You from Your Word. I exposed them to Your law. Now, oh God, please take this and use it. Spirit, You must come through. Can I ask just one more question? Some of you are here today and you're like, "All right, um, I get it. Uh, The Holy Spirit has to do this. And there are others of you who are like, uh, this conviction thing, I don't know that I've ever experienced that at all. <laughs> I just kind of like wanted to get along with my family, and I thought it'd be you know, nice to occasionally show up to church and be a good Christian person. Friends, if you've never been convicted of your sin, I truly wonder, I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to play the Holy Spirit, but I would wonder if you've ever been converted. Have you been convicted? Have you ever felt your guilt before God? Has your soul been humbled at Jesus' feet? Have you been made, forced to look at Christ and Him crucified for your rescue? If you've never experienced that, you you have no right to comfort or consolation just because you show up at church or because you do good things. The Spirit first convinces the world. Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, said it this way, man is great insofar as he realizes that he is wretched. (laughs) Man is great insofar as he realizes he is wretched. We have to first realize that we have a problem before we can accept the solution. One put it this way, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and His compulsion is our liberation. Friends, if you're here today and you're experiencing what this author calls the hardness of God, that conviction, I I just want you to know, we're not trying to just make you miserable. The Spirit isn't about seeing you unhappy. (laughs) He's about diagnosing appropriately the error in your heart so that you can know the solution that only Christ can provide. Honest oncologists aren't bad men. Someone telling you that you have cancer of the soul is only the first step in you understanding the correction that can come from Christ alone. So we have an advantage, brothers and sisters. I say this to all of you who are like, man, this is so hard. I'm not seeing the fruit that I want to see. We're supposed to be about this as a church. Lean in on this advantage. The Holy Spirit is the one who is convicting of sin whether you realize it or not. And I want to point out one more thing before we move on. He doesn't do this independently of people. He does it through people. We could just say, oh, well, the Spirit convicts the world. Okay, I'm just going to back off. He is telling them that the Spirit will do this through them. It is your proclamation of the Word. It is your prayers. It is your faithful presence and love and holiness that actually is used by the Spirit to help people understand their need for Christ. He's doing that through you. So advantage one, the Spirit is convicting the world. Advantage two, the Spirit is conveying the truth. Look at verses 12 to 15. It's very compassionate of Jesus. Again, notice verse 12. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Notice that. That's a great teacher. Like I see it. If I go over an hour with you guys, it's over. You cannot bear it now. I just might as well go home. He's he's like, you're at saturation. I've got so much more I need to tell you before you embark on this mission, but you're not going to get it right now. I get that. But notice what he says as a follow-up. But when the spirit of truth comes, by the way, there is a a but, uh, an adversative in the original. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Notice that all right, I've told you a lot, and you're not going to be able to get it, but when the Spirit of truth comes, He will, and I love this phrase, He will guide you into all truth. Not He will guide you to truth, but the Greek preposition, into all truth. Like, it won't just be something that's close, but it's something that you're going to be immersed into, This is good for them. You need to understand this the way that they would have understood it. Because sometimes I ask myself another question. That's basically all I do as I'm preparing is ask questions and try to seek answers. It's like, I look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm like, oh yeah, this is the story of Jesus. This makes total sense. And then I get to like Romans, first Corinthians, Galatians, you know, third John, Revelation. And I'm like, where did this come from? Like Jesus, the Son of God being written about, like that makes total sense to me. But like the rest of this, like am I going to say that this is like the same message? This is the same thing? This is just as authoritative? Oh yeah, I will. Because Jesus said that I'm going to tell you some stuff now and then the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to unfold the rest of it, the intent of it. He's going to guide you. Don't apply this to yourself yet. Don't worry, we'll get to you. Think about the 11. He will guide y'all into all truth. And not only that, notice at the end of verse 12, or excuse me, at the end of verse 13, he says, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit it will unpack the significance of everything that I've been telling you, and he will tell you what is to come. The Spirit would work through these men in a unique way to ensure that divine revelation that was needed for life, for spiritual life, for spiritual well-being, like they would get all that they needed. That's what he says, into all the truth, not just some of it or most of it. It's going to happen. You're going to get it. The Spirit will convey the truth. And what's amazing about this is that he will guide them into the same truth that Jesus had been giving them. Basically, I want you to think about it this way. It's almost like a a, a waterfall. I'm going from left to right because you're facing this way. So, God the Father had shared the life-giving information with God the Son, right? We see all that over and over again in the book of John. All that the Father has said to me, I am giving to you. I have heard all that the Father says. All that the Father has given me is mine. He's going to say it again. He gave that to the Son. The Son is saying this, I am going to convey all of that now to the Spirit. And He will communicate this to you. Here's what happens next. The Spirit takes that same truth that we have to have for for life and health, and He's going to pass it along to the apostles. And then the apostles are going to take that truth, and they're going to record it into God's Word, making it available for all of us 2,000 years later. And the Spirit is still guiding people into truth through that same message that has been passed on for our benefit. The truth has been conveyed. I think sometimes we could think, oh man, how great it would be if Jesus could just speak into my situation. Well, good news, friends, He has. He took what he received from the Father, and he passed it on to the Spirit, who then passed it on the apostles, who then inscripturated it, wrote it down for our benefit, and now we still have access to that today. Notice the last part of the, the verse. He says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's, it's not something less than. He's saying it's an advantage. Now you've got the Spirit taking that truth that's been passed on, and he will be guiding you into it in a way that Jesus couldn't do in his limited three years. <laughs> you, have something, you have a better teacher than even they did. I love the way that uh, John Stott explains this in his book, The Radical Disciple. He, uh, he cites this old preacher, William Temple, and I, this is worth reading, so give me a moment. It's only a few lines. Temple says, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like this. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like this. And Stock concludes, God's purpose is to make us like Christ, and God's way to do that is to fill us with His Holy Spirit. Think about that. The genius of God conveyed through the Holy Spirit, wrapped in the Scriptures, and then made alive as He works in our hearts when we read it. if you were to boil down the Spirit's ministry in your heart as a believer, if you're in Christ today, into just the the four main things that He does for us, this might be worth jotting down. The Spirit discerns, distinguishes, desires, determines. The Spirit gives us discernment. He's written His Word, but here's what happens when the believer reads the Word All of a sudden, in their mind, they know what it means. They understand what it's saying. Do we understand it all immediately when we read it? No, but we understand what we need to know when God intends for us to know it. There's a discernment in the mind. There's a second thing the Spirit's doing when you're reading His passed on Word. And that is distinguishing right from wrong. So not only does he discern in the mind, but he distinguishes in the conscience. We start reading stuff, and this this kind of thing happens. Maybe you've been reading your Bible, or you're sitting in in a message like this, and you're like, oh man, I need to do such and such. I didn't even, the preacher, for example, didn't even tell you you need to do such and such. You're just thinking, I better, I need to make this right. I need to do this. I need to stop that. That's the Spirit. It's the genius of God being passed on to you through the Scriptures. Then there's not only the discernment piece, but there's also desire. You're not just, say, you're not just saying, um, okay, that's right, I agree with it, and yeah, I need to be doing this and not that, but then all of a sudden, here's, the, here's how you know it's the Spirit. You want to do it. You want, Remember the old saying? Man convinced against his will. The will changes. Like stuff that most people would be like, that would, how did they, what, why are they doing that? Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody live that way? The Spirit gives the desire for that. And then there's the last piece the termination of the will. There's desire in the heart, but the Spirit also provides this determination in the will where you're like, I'm going to do it. And even when we fail, we're like, okay, I'm going to confess it to Jesus, and I'm still going to try to do it. Like, we stick to it. That's the Spirit working. A fair concern would be, well, how do we know when it's the Spirit versus just our own thoughts? How did the apostles know whether or not what they were writing down was just what they were imagining or what Jesus actually intended for them to write down? Well, there's a clarifying comment here that will provide just a little bit of insight into what is genuine and real. Notice what he says in verse 14 about the Spirit. Here's how you know it's the Spirit at work. He will glorify me. You notice it's the Spirit when it's that which brings glory and honor to the Lord Jesus. The Spirit is the subtler member of the triune Godhead. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He draws attention to Christ. There's all kinds of stuff floating around out there that says, oh, well, we need the spirit moving among us. We need the spirit at work. And, and typically what people are saying in that is these acts that bring more attention to the individual. Did you speak in tongues? Did you have this crazy experience? Did you laugh out loud? Did you get a lot of money? Did you feel... That it, it's, it's all about the self. Isn't that crazy? That's how you know it's... Here's how you know that's not the Holy Spirit because it wasn't giving the attention to Jesus. J.I. Packer said that the Holy Spirit is somewhat like a, a floodlight on a house. I've actually been stunned. It's, it's, it's a Naples thing, the amount of money that people spend to put lights on their houses. They, <laughs> not even in your house, on your house. It's cool. If I could do it, I would. <laughs> but here's the great thing about a floodlight. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It puts the attention on the house. A well-placed floodlight, nobody's going, man, that's a cool light. They're saying, that's a beautiful house. You know it's the Holy Spirit working inside you when it is lighting up for you, Jesus. I want that. Oh, that makes him look so good. I want to act like him in that way. I want to adore Him for this. This isn't cold, dry, and dusty. I'm not just saying that the Spirit is the Bible. The Spirit works through the Bible to illuminate for us, to glorify, to put on display the Lord Jesus. He's conveying truth. That's an advantage. We've got that. And I think Jesus would intend for us to walk away aware of such an advantage. I heard an interesting story this week about a photographer uh, in Australia who was trying to cover this devastating brush fire. He had taken all the pictures that he could from the ground, and yet, um, He specifically asked his editor if he could get the expenses covered for uh, an aerial view, a plane. Uh, So he calls the regional airport, gets the green light. It says the plane will be waiting for you there. And the guy rushes over to the airport, jumps into the plane, and he's like, let's go. Pilot takes off, takes him up. Over toward uh, the brush fire, and he's like, "Okay, swing over to the right." He says, "I want to be able to get things from this particular angle." And the guy reluctantly says, uh, "Okay." And then he says, "All right, next. Uh, that's good." He said, "Let's let's actually go down, like into the smoke. Let's see if we can get under it a little bit and actually see the fire." And the guy says, "Why?" And the photographer's response: "Well, I." I I'm a photographer. I won't get pictures. And the pilot responds, you mean you're not the instructor? (laughs) Friends, as we fly through life, we're not accompanied by a photographer. We are accompanied by the instructor. You feel that dread. You feel that uncertainty of trying to carry forward the mission of Jesus in His absence because you forgot who is sitting, not just beside you, but in you. And you know what He's doing? So steadily, almost imperceptibly, convicting the world. Conveying the truth. Maybe you didn't pick up on it. I would encourage you. Take two minutes this afternoon, after you call your mama, and read Isaiah 42 again. Because in it, we have this description of the Spirit coming upon the Messiah, the Anointed One, and when we think of the Spirit, we typically think He's going to blow stuff up. It's going to be huge. And what does it say that the Spirit will do through the Messiah? He's like, He's going to make sure that reeds don't break in half that are already broken. He's going to make sure that struggling candles of individuals, if you will, don't get blown out. It describes his ministry among the rest of the peoples as something that is steady, that makes its way to the coastlands. It is gradual. I want you to understand, friends, that the Spirit's work and growth in your heart and in your ministry outside the walls of your own house is often like growing in childhood. Your kids are like, man, why am I bigger? I want to be bigger. And yet, if you're willing to deface your house in this way, you can take him back to the doorpost with the little mark on it and say, yeah, you are bigger. It is better than it was last year this time. Friends, don't don't think that you don't have the advantage because it's not awesome and impressive. It is steady. It is strong. It is the Spirit of God. He is doing His work. You've got the trump card. It is downhill. You are on third base. The Spirit is in you. And so as, as I try to bring this to an applicable close, I would just encourage you on two levels. One, engage in this mission. Yes, we know that there's opposition. Yes, we know that it's hard. Yes, we know that they say no. But I think so often... We've totally pulled back from our engagement with the world that needs Jesus, whether they're people in our home, our family, or outside of that, because we think that it's somehow up to us. And we've tried so many times in our own strength, and it just doesn't work. And so you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, really, who likes to keep doing something that they feel like they're failing at? But, just you don't do the convicting. You don't do the convincing. You just leave them with the word of Christ and talk more to God about man than man about God. Engage. Second, enjoy. I, just, I want you to understand that um, you, should, you should speak, you should live with this confidence that the Spirit is getting His work done in and through you, in and through us it's happening. Like Jesus actually intended for them to enjoy. He says, I know you're sad, and here's how I'm going to make you happy. And he doesn't give them a lollipop. He tells them, here it is. Here's the truth. The Spirit is going to be with you. He actually intends for this to make you happy. The Spirit is working through you. The Spirit is conveying truth to you. I was talking to my daughter about this yesterday. I said, I wonder if anyone this week in the church, and I doubt it, consciously made themselves happy thinking about the Spirit's presence among them. Like, I didn't even do that until I got to the end of the preparation for the message. And indeed, the Spirit will not draw attention to himself, but Jesus actually intends for you to be encouraged by the fact that when you go out this week, you are not alone. He's doing something. This isn't the impossible task. It isn't mission impossible. It's mission probable. Actually, it's mission promised. He's getting the job done. Enjoy that. For the ministry that we exercise with one another and to a lost world is not the great obligation. It is the great honor to be a channel for the spirit to work, to bring spiritual life to others. That, that is our privilege.